Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Eidelberg. And I'm Emma Strutt. And welcome to episode 21 for the year. Now, before you continue listening, please make sure you hit the subscribe button in your app and later share this podcast with your friends and family. As always, if you do find our content interesting and inspiring, please do buy us a coffee and you'll find all those details on our website. Emma, we have two amazing women on the show. Shall we get on with the intros? We shall, yes. So today we are so lucky to be having two fabulous guests joining us, Bonnet Debod and Susan Scott from Scott Debod Films. These two incredible ladies are award-winning documentary filmmakers based in South Africa who spent years filming their critically acclaimed documentary, Stroop, which takes viewers on a journey into the Rhino Horn War and really highlights just how far-reaching and complex this issue actually is. More recently, they've gifted the world with another stunning documentary, Kingdoms of Fire, Ice and Fairy Tales. So Susan, Bonnet, thank you so much for joining us. We know how incredibly busy you are, so we appreciate your time today. Well, thank you very much. It's lovely to to be able to share our story with you and your audience. We're very excited. And in in addition to being uh, super busy... Uh, we also know that you were under uh, a huge time constraint because where you are now, load shedding, um, and this conversation could cut out. So just to add a bit of excitement and pressure to our conversation. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Ben. Uh, it's, it's it's never easy uh, under these circumstances. So my, uh, my brother lives in Europe, and he's always uh, amazed whenever uh, things like this happen with, with our infrastructure. So, yeah. And, well, then the other thing is we're filmmakers, so we love working under pressure. So maybe this is a good thing. <laughs> so you're actually teaching us a lesson on how to do this. Okay, let's, let, let's see how we, how we cope. <laughs> so, um, ladies, again, thank you so much for, for um, finally coming onto the show. It's, uh, it's something we've been wanting to make happen for so long because of the impact of this documentary, which we'll get into very shortly. But... Can we first start a little bit about your respective backgrounds and um, and how you even met? Well, you know, I've always loved wildlife. Um, I was very fortunate growing up. My parents and my grandparents used to take me and my two sisters to the Kruger National Park during school holidays. And that's really where my love for the, the natural world was born. So for me, it was sort of a, it was just natural to step into the role as wildlife television presenter uh, and I joined the 5050 team which is a TV show it's the longest running environmental wildlife nature show in South Africa on our national broadcaster SABC and um, yes and I, and I did incredible stories stunning stories about wildlife but also more importantly the people working to conserve it um, and I'm also a special correspondent for a number of news channels in South Africa and radio stations talking about giving updates on the rhino poaching crisis, but also other nature and wildlife related stories and and issues. And spending time four years on the ground, uh, making our first feature documentary films through a journey into the rhino horn war, um, that has led me to facilitate discussions on illegal wildlife trafficking for the United Nations environmental program, as well as um, at film festivals and wildlife symposiums. 
Yeah, and, and for myself, um, you know, that was Bonnet speaking for those who um, are, are getting confused between the two voices here. Um, yeah, for myself, I, I, I grew up in, in Zimbabwe. My, my uh, mum is Scottish. My, my dad's grandparents were, were Scottish. So we used to go back to the UK all the time and visit family in Scotland. So um, coming back, you know, coming back home to the small little mining town in Zimbabwe, I used to, I used to just love the contrast between being at my grand's country home in the UK and then coming back to this dry, dusty bush felt. I'm sure it's, it's you know, it's um, it's easy to understand why I love for, for our, um, our bush here in, in, in South Africa. And we used to go quite a lot to the Kuganai when we were growing up, just like Bonnet. So, um, yeah, and then, and then when... Um, you know, when I was uh, looking at going to university, my dad very much wanted me to go uh, to the UK to go study there. And somehow I wound up in the United States on a golf scholarship, so of all things. And um, yeah, and, and I just loved the States and, and really enjoyed my time there. But I missed I missed home a lot. I missed being back in Africa. And um, at the stage, my parents were living in South Africa. And uh, yeah, and I knew, you know, when I graduated, I, I, I started studying film and I knew I was going to always come back home. But I actually actually stayed on and worked in Washington, D.C., which is kind of considered the, the home of documentaries. So I knew I was always going to come back and, and look at making wildlife documentaries. So I think early on, I was very focused with, with what I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do. And I think I was, I was very lucky that, uh, that that kind of drove me. So when I came home, I, um, I edited for about... Uh, I mean, it makes me sound so old now, but I edited for about 20 years um, for some really good wildlife filmmakers and, and just learned a hang of a lot from them. And um, yeah, and then um, a couple of you know uh, years back, I uh, started working on 5050, the show that Bonnet mentioned. It is the longest running uh, environment and, and wildlife show in, in, in South Africa. And uh, some say it's in the world, I believe, because it's it's been on air for... I think so, think. yeah. It's been going on now 35 years. years. Yeah. Yeah. That so shows how important. old I am because to our listeners, you know, how important or how significant this program is, that was Sunday night family viewing in our home. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I mean, that was, for me, that was the highlights of the week. You know, I yeah. would... You know, my parents didn't really agree with me to watch Sunday night's uh, program before before Monday. But I persuaded them, and yeah, I just you know watching the incredible uh, stories that that the team actually um, told. You know, I just knew I had to be on the show. So yeah, yeah I remember the Sunday nights very well. Absolutely. So um, so obviously you you both met through fifty fifty. Now just one random question because I couldn't answer this for Emma. Why was it called fifty fifty? Was that because it was half Afrikaans, half English? Was that the reason? Yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people thought that. A lot of people thought it was. Uh, I, I, you know, I saw it when I was growing up as well, and I thought, okay, it's because half is English, half is Afrikaans. But apparently, um, years later, when when I, I asked one of the the commissioning editors about it, and I said, oh well, it's because it, you know, it's now it's now fully in English. So right. you know, with some 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 bits in Afrikaans and some bits in Zulu and um, Sesotho. So, you know, I remember saying something about, well, you may have to change it to sort of 50, 25, 25. And so they said, what are, what are you talking about? It's 50-50. Uh, we get both sides of the story. So it's like, oh, okay. I get it. So wrong. <laughs> Good thing you didn't ask that in your interview then. 
Obviously, um, a love of wildlife really runs deep for both of you. So let's set the scene a little bit before we dive into talking about your incredible documentary. Um, so when it comes to rhinos, a large percentage um, of the world's remaining rhinos are actually in South Africa. And I had a look at some of those stats and, you know, there was an exponential rise in rhino poaching between um, 2007 and 2014, it was looking incredibly bleak. The good news is, and I'm using this word good pretty loosely here, that poaching now seems to be on the decline, slowly but surely. But that decrease doesn't mean that rhino populations are now thriving, does it? This is still a huge issue. Um, so what are some of the important stats that we should know before we get into this documentary? Okay, so... Emma, you know, during 2020, uh, 394 rhinos were poached compared to the 594 in 2019. And that resembled a 33% decline. And um, all the news reports that came out, everyone just said wonderful news. But And it is wonderful news. But we need to look at the reasons for the decline. Um, you know, the, the minister, our minister of environment, contributes this decline to, yes, some extent, the lockdown but mostly their integrated strategic management of rhinoceros approach or plan, if you will. And yeah, that, that's a plan that the government has, um, you know, a South African government to tackle the, the um, rhino poaching crisis. Because as you were saying, Emma, the numbers have gone up mm. exponentially since 2007. And, and this plan uh, has been in place since uh, 2013, through those dreadful years of 2014 to 2017, uh, when our rhino losses were at their worst and continues to be in place unchanged while our rhino numbers continue to, to decline year on year due to poaching. Now, the hard lockdown of 2020 um, showed us that when the gates were closed to the Kruger National Park, there was no poaching. And that can only tell us one thing, that the entry and exit points of the park are the problem. And, and I think this should be a big wake-up call for our government. Um, and I hope that they will amend this eight-year-old strategy, uh, integrate strategic management of a rhinoceros approach. And then, you know, while I'm grateful, as I said, for the work that's been done on the ground by the rangers and the law enforcement officials, the reality is that the lockdown had the biggest impact on poaching. Mm. And, and sources on the ground said that there was a dramatic surge again after the lockdown. Yeah, and we're starting to see that now. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, our lockdown, I don't know what it was like for you guys in New Zealand. I, mean, I think you you breezed on while the rest of the world suffered. But our lockdown was pretty mm. was pretty harsh. And, mm. um, and for all those months that we were locked down, it obviously meant the Kruger National Park, which is the hardest hit area in the world, was completely closed off and um yeah it's uh, you know the stats themselves you know what Bonnet just went through now just reveals just how uh how much of an impact that that had mm. and and you know that i i think as Bonnet was saying the government does need to look at maybe integrating some of that stuff in there the the police roadblocks are closing off the areas um you know far more stringent you know being far more stringent about it than than they have been and um yeah and Sadly, we're starting to see that surge. And, that, and that's really interesting because I would have thought lockdown would have meant an increase because less people able to patrol, uh, you know, cutbacks on, on maybe funding because, you know, more businesses that support, you know, are not able to fund it. So I would have actually thought it would have gone the other way around. But what you're saying is, is actually there's a system issue. That's really where the crux of, the, of, of a lot of it is. 
Right. So uh, the rangers are part of essential workers. So okay. right throughout lockdown, they were doing patrols as they do 24-7, seven days a week. So that didn't change at all. Um, what changes the fact that tourists um, were not allowed in the parks, um, in the national parks and provincial parks? And so, in fact, December, when gates opened and tourists were now once again allowed to, to you know, visit our national parks, December was a horrendous month uh, mm. in terms of coaching. And then also, you know, if we look at the numbers, we, we will not be able to sustain this year on and, you know, year out. It's just not possible. There was a, a shocking report from Africa Geographic a couple of months ago stating that almost 70% of the rhino population in Kruger have been lost over the past 10 years. So, of course, that means there are 70% fewer rhinos left to poach in Kruger. So, yeah, so Emma, your, your numbers, I think you're looking at 2007 when there were 13 uh, poachings in, in South Africa. And I think, I think the number's in the 60s for, for Africa. And it started to rise up until uh, 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, all those years, it was way over 1,000 rhinos poached. I mean, that's a... We're talking, you know, thousands and thousands of, of poachings, three rhinos a day that are being killed. So, yes, to now sit here at three at 594 for 2019 and, and 394 last year because of the, the lockdown mostly, you know, one has to also assume that the, the numbers are declining because there just are fewer rhinos. Mm, yeah. so it, and I'm sorry, it's, just to add to that, it is important to look at the number of rhinos poached, but more importantly, we need to look at the rhino population as a whole. The number of rhinos that, that are in the wild and still alive. Um, we've talked about this before on the show, but a lot of these rhinos that are being poached um, because they're an easier target um, are pregnant females, correct? Or ones that have a small rhino with them? Yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's called collateral damage. And um, yeah, it's a very, it's, it's incredibly sad. Um, what, what, ha what happens is, is that um, with the escalation that you were talking about in, in 2009, um, you know, and, and as I mentioned earlier, for five years, it was over a thousand a year. And, and, and no one really knows now how many rhinos we've got left in, in South Africa. We've been asking for census results and the, um, you know, there's, there's things underway. And it's always, it's always an estimation, of course, we have to remember that. Um, but we're probably somewhere between 10 and 20,000 rhinos. So I think there's a danger thinking that we've got time. And if we don't think of the animals um, suffering and just of them as assets, there's something rather... Um, you know, as I was saying here, there's this term called collateral damage. It's, 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 it's something that we've really got to be aware of because rhinos breed well, especially the free-ranging wild rhinos. But cows and pregnant or lactating cows are targeted by poachers. You know, they're, they're pretty easy to find. And when they're taken out of the system, the breeding rates obviously drop dramatically. And so when you combine the poaching and the collateral damage, the fact that you know, these are pregnant cows and obviously their, their babies are now being orphaned and a lot of times they don't get picked up, they don't get found. We, we mentioned that in, in the film as well. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a huge worry that, that this is uh, something that maybe uh, is taking us beyond the point of no return because how do you, how do you get those numbers back again because of the, the, the you know, it's not just a rhino lost, it's, it's those individuals as well as the breeding potential that comes out of those females. So we've set the setting, hugely upsetting um, and even 
you know, causes a lot of anger. And um, so let's talk a little bit about the documentary Strup. What inspired to create this? Now, I believe you started filming in 2017, which would have been at the height of the poaching. So tell us a little bit about why you decided to, to create this and what, is actually, what does Strup actually mean? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll let Bonnet answer the Strup. What does Strup actually mean? <laughs> well, the word Strup is actually the Afrikaans word for poached. But there is a deeper meaning behind it. It also means to strip bare. So I felt that this would be a, a very fitting name because when a rhino is poached, yes, it's, it's the physical horn they take, but it's so much more. You know, they, they take away the iconicness, the, the essence of a rhino, what makes a rhino a rhino. And then the rest of the title, Journey into the Rhino Horn War, it really is a journey. We take the viewer on. In fact, it's been said that it's a, a roller coaster ride between uh, continents. And, and I think that is, that's apt. Yeah. And then further to, to your question, Ben, um, you know, what, what, what inspired us to, to make it? I think at the time when we were, we were filming uh, 50-50 stories, it was about 2012, 2013. Everyone was obviously talking about the, the rhino poaching crisis and, and that the rhinos were being poached. And, and I think in both, you know, I don't want to talk, you know, speak for Bonnet, but I think in both Bonnet and myself, we, we very much had this idea that, oh, well, um, because, you know, the major news outlets around the world are looking at it, there's obviously big international film crews that are telling stories about this. And I think, um, you know, when I was speaking earlier about, you know, my, my you know, growing up in Africa and going to uh, university in the States and kind of, you know, being a UK citizen and heading back, I kind of really view myself as, as, as belonging to three, to three continents. And I think it's important to have that international outlook because what happens is when you live in the global south, I, I think you tend to have this very parochial kind of provincial view that, oh, well, we've got a problem here, but somebody international, someone in, you know, global north will, will come through and handle the story and make it a worldwide story. I don't know. We, we just don't, I think, I, I don't know if you guys get this in New Zealand, but we, we tend to have this this view that we we can't really tell our own stories, and um, and I and I think that changed for us when we were in Kruger. We were actually working on a wild dog story for Fifty Fifty, and Bonnet and I were, you know, obviously we had access and we were staying at a, a research camp and we were watching the army guys and the rangers on the ground. The army had been called in at that stage, and we were chatting to them and and they knew they could talk to us because you know we weren't doing a rhino story. It was kind of um, you know that they could they could freely discuss with us what was going on and um and you know while we were seeing this happening and we were going out and filming our wild dog story and the guys were getting in the helicopters and running out we sort of looked at each other and said well where's the international media i mean surely they're telling the story i mean someone's got to be telling the story and i think that's when it dawned on us Clip, we we should be telling the story we're seeing this these are our South African men and women on the ground dealing with this big, huge um, international news story about South Africa's rhinos or the world's rhinos, which two thirds of happen to be in South Africa. So, yeah, so it just felt like we needed to show the world what was happening at, at ground zero. Um, and then and then we we actually approached the team at 5050 and, and, and conveyed this to them that no one is actually looking in depth at the rhino crisis. You know, can we do a story? And they greenlit the story. Um, they gave us 12 minutes. And I, I, I remember saying to Susan, well, I don't know how we're going to tell the story in, in, in 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, it's so complex, the, the rhino poaching crisis. 
But anyway, we we filmed in the Kruger National Park and um, the rangers took us to a crime scene. It was a double carcass and Susan, I remember she, uh, she told me to sit in between these two carcasses and do my lines to camera, do my link to camera. So telling the viewers what I'm feeling, what I'm seeing, what I'm experiencing. And it was sort of in that moment where I just thought, well, I mean, how can humanity be so unbelievably cruel? And how can we as South Africans and, and actually the world allow this to happen? And for both of us, really at the same time, we just said, well, you know, we have to do something more. Uh, we have to really dig deep and, and go in depth and look at the rhino poaching from all aspects. And that's where the idea for a document, documentary feature film uh, was born, you know, a completely independent film with no censorship or broadcast sensitivities. We wanted to show the real, uh, the raw rhino story, and, and that is exactly what Stirrup is. Yeah, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe the original intention was that the documentary wrap in about six months, but this project turned out to be quite a mega project. I imagine the more you learned, the more rabbit holes you ended up going down. Um, so how long did this take to film in total? Yeah, you, you are quite correct, Emma. Uh, we thought it will be a six-month project, <laughs> yeah. but it turned out to be a four-year odyssey. Um, wow. I think we, we didn't really know what we were getting into at the beginning. You know, we didn't we didn't realize just how layered the mm -hmm. rhino poaching is. Yes, I mean all wildlife crime has deep aspects to it that you that you sort of unravel as you go along. But this was really difficult because of the nature of taking a horn off of a rhino. You know, obviously poaching which is illegal and can be horrifically cruel is one method. And sadly, as we've now discussed, rampant throughout South Africa. But then reserve managers, private rhino owners, the, the breeders of rhinos can apply for permits to dehorn their rhinos uh, through sedation and legally keep the horn. So it's it's very different from lion or elephant poaching where you have to kill the animal. You don't have to kill the, uh, a rhino to, to take off the horns. Um, they call it dehorning. So, they, you know, it was very difficult to sort of stay neutral because we've got sort of two camps in South Africa advocating. The one advocates for legal trade and the other says that will definitely lead to the extinction of the species. So we had to navigate that very, very carefully. And that took time. You know, we we were offered, uh, you know, financial uh, support from a lot of NGOs, but we had to say no because the story would sway to one side of the trade debate. And we had to stay neutral. And um, that's also why it took so long. And then, you know, another reason we were truly independent. So we had to crowdfund. Yeah. Um, and that took a while. Yeah. So we would go out to film and then realize, oh, gosh, we ran out of money. You know, we have to now get back to to the office, apply for more grants, ask people to forward by a digital download of the film before we, we release it. You know, we sold calendars, wow. edit sweet. We asked for support for translation costs. So that all took time. You know, we spent a lot of time on social media and our supporters really became our executive producers, mm, mm. which is not, it was difficult, but not necessarily a bad thing because they felt part of the process, um, you know, the entire four years filming. And I think also just to add to what Bonet was saying, um, you know, it, it's, it's tough also getting into some of these places. Uh, you know, the national parks know us because of, of 
you know, Bonet is very well known, uh, you know, um, as a as a wildlife television presenter. So, and and she's twice won the Sand Parks Kudu Award for her, her journalism and and her reporting from from the ground. So I think you know, there's there's a lot of trust in the stories that she tells. So that was very helpful getting into places, but still. It was very, very difficult. You know, we had world-renowned rehabilitator, you know, orphan rehabilitator Karen Trevender. She took two years before she fully trusted us and allowed us into film at her orphanage. And the enforcement agencies took just as long. But once we got there, there was this uh, real environment. And, and, you know, we did take a small crew with us at the beginning, but we soon realized we were putting their lives in danger on police raids, guns out, you know, canine dogs on leads and and red-hot arrests happening right there on the ground. The same with the rangers. Poachers being arrested out in the field, shouting, yelling, lots of confusion, the helicopters overhead, gunshots. I mean, it was really super scary stuff. And, and even in the courts, sometimes the traffickers or the poachers would turn around and take photos of Bonnet and, and myself. Um, you know, Bonnet would be sitting at, in the dock at, in the back benches observing. Um, or they would glare at us and, and laugh when we'd film them in the dock and and even threaten us, you know, sort of doing a slitting throat um, motion. And, and many times we were followed, you know, phone calls, messages harassing us. And, and you know, in fact, we, we actually were convinced that our phones were monitored. And we, we still don't know by who, um, you know, if it was state authorities or, or the poaching gangs. And, and it, was, it was scary. And so we evolved by using methods that we thought only war correspondents had to use. Uh, so... We couldn't allow other people into this, and and that also took a long time. You know, when you're doing it just the the, the two of, you know, the two of us, and and especially when we were filming undercover, we were prepared to be arrested, but we couldn't expect that of of other folk that we worked with, cameramen and sound recorders that we bring along. I mean, they've got partners and and children to to come home to. So we paid the price of this for a much longer shoot to ensure our safety, and and you know, and we changed dramatically um, through through all of this. I, I think if. I knew what I was going into at the beginning. I don't know if I would have gone through with it. But, you know, I'm not the person I was then. So the person I am now, for sure, for sure I would have. But, um, yeah, but bottom line is you just don't, you don't take no for an answer. You know, if you have to bug these guys on phone calls and emails and yeah. listen, it's us again, you know, please can you allow us to, <laughs> yeah, to go exactly. with you on a, on a police bust and that type of thing. You, you just, you, you know, keep going. Keep going. It sure escalated from a 12-minute feature on 50-50. But just to carry on from that, more as a personal reflection, I mean, the one question I would have asked is, how hard is it not to get involved when you're seeing all these horrors? But actually, what I'm more interested in is, and, and there were aspects of that in the film, when you travel to Southeast Asia, for instance, as well, is, and, and you touched on it, but did you actually ever feel threatened? Did you actually really think, you know what, I think we've stepped over the line, we might have to pull back, we might have to quit, we might have to, you know, we're putting ourselves in danger. You know, one thing's being arrested, but did you actually feel threatened at any point? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I mean, you know, it's it's also it's also tough to answer because if we say if we say yes, then I think there's there may be a, a thing of, of future independent filmmakers who may say, oh, I, I, this is not this is not for me. So I would love to say mm. You know, we once we, we once asked a, a, a prosecutor that we were working with, and we had the cameras rolling. We said, "Do you feel threatened?" And she said, "No, of course not." And then when the cameras came off, she said, "Don't ask that." I mean, of course, if I say yes, then the the baddies that I'm prosecuting are going to you know that they're winning in the end. So I think 
you know, one, mm. one doesn't want to say yes because the bad guys win in the end, don't they? But I think mm. th there is a very real reality to, to all of this. Right. I mean, you know, filming in a communist uh, country like Vietnam brings with its its own challenges. You know, mm. the, the communist party controls all forms of media. Yeah. Uh, Vietnam actually ranked uh, 175th out of 180 countries in terms of freedom of uh, information. It's actually one of the biggest prisons for environmental journalists and citizen bloggers. But we knew that we couldn't only focus on where rhinos are, the, the, the source site. We had to also focus on uh, the demand uh, site, Vietnam, China. And, and in order for us to capture the legal side of things, we had to, in a sense, become illegal yeah. ourselves, which we did. Um, and, you know, we filmed underground um, in Vietnam. And, and there was one, for me, there was one scary moment. Um, we were actually sitting around a table with these illegal wildlife smugglers. Um, and they brought out lots of natural products from ivory bangles, buffalo horn bangles. And eventually, after sitting there for a couple of hours, negotiating, the, the rhino horn bangles and rhino horn libation cups came out. And at some point the one member of the gang turned to us and asks if we want to go to the factory to see how they make all these trinkets and, and jewelry out of the, the actual raw rhino horn. And without even thinking about it, we, we both just answered, yes, uh, yes, let's, let's go for it. We would love to see where, uh, yeah. how you carve trinkets out of rhino horn. So, you know, they asked us to get into their car. It, it was a gold 4x4. And there we were, not, not knowing if they are telling the truth, if we are going to a factory, our translator didn't know. Is it a trap? Yeah, it's a trap, exactly. And, and just so stupid. I mean, we both were just, you know, so obsessed with, at the, in the moment, to get the shot. The moment, to get the shot. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah, let's go. And, and so trusting Not at the same time. Not thinking of the consequences no. at all. Uh, and we were covered in undercover, uh, undercover cameras, buttonhole cameras, key cameras. Susan even taped a GoPro to my body. So, um, you know, I won't be able to ditch it if they now decided to search us at this factory. So, and, and that's, I think it dawned on us yeah. we're sitting in the car. I mean, you also see it in the film. We're kind of looking at each other going. That's right. Uh, what, I was scared for you guys. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Like, how, like. Oh, just that naivety, yeah, which that's I, the thing. I don't think we would do now. No, no. But I don't think you, you were know, naive. We I think it's like you said, you're so caught up in the moment and it's 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 sort of that that opportunity. Because like you said earlier on, there's all these layers and, and every opportunity to unearth another layer and go another layer deeper and to get a, a, a deeper understanding. You, you just can't say no. Yeah, so well You can't say no, that's yeah. the problem. And, you know, we all know now know that everything works out okay. We're chatting, we're doing this podcast. You guys, yeah, I mean, if they searched us, we could have been, I don't know, uh, chopped up and thrown into the Mekong River, you know? And, and I, so I would say that was a bit scary. Yes, yeah, definitely. And, and I think you know, one always sees, one always sees um, filming undercover and you think, wow, that's the, you know, the most dangerous aspect of it. But, you know, I, I actually haven't, um, you know, spoken about this. Um, so... Sorry, I'm gonna bore I'm gonna bore you guys with this, um, you know, first on your podcast. But um, I was just, you know, we were going through some of your talking points, Ben, and just realised, gosh, you know, there's this, there is this kind of aspect or this idea that undercover filming is so dangerous. Wow, that's the most dangerous that thing that you that you guys did. But I got sick very badly when we 
home from Vietnam and I'm not sure what it was. Um, maybe it was the wet markets. We spent quite a lot of time filming in there um, as, as we now all know. Uh, they're, they're really places where you can pick up some, some nasty things. And also we, we really tried to film the pollution is, is a thread that we looked at in, in the film because of the increased usage, just to give some backstory, because of the increased usage in, in rhino horn as a, as a TCM for um, sort of uh, as a uh, you know accompanying cancer uh, treatment chemotherapy and um, that's that really increased dramatically and we wanted to find out where that came from and that sort of tied into the the increase in pollution levels so we we were spending a lot of time filming in these kind of locations the wet market down at street level all the pollution and I you know I was just wearing a bandana and um, I remember at night. Uh, you can see it in, in the film as well, where we just took off, um, you know, Bonnet's washing a shirt. You can actually see the pollution coming out in the in the um, sink in, the, in you know, as you're washing it. And I would actually take my bandana off and there would be just this grime everywhere just from the from the pollution. And so, yeah, I, I picked up a, a cough and then it just led, you know, it got progressively worse. And I had really bad, bad lung issues. I was actually in the emergency room, unable to breathe. And um I was prescribed uh, a really, really hardcore antibiotics, these fluoroquinolones, and unfortunately, they have an effect in some people, and they affected me. And at that time, I was a half marathon runner. I was super fit. And when these um, pills affected me, they they snapped they snap your tendons, and I snapped um, tendons in my ankle. And oh, oh, literally, I could not walk. So um, I had to have a bike. I moved around on a bike, and I had a walking stick. And um, I, I haven't, I haven't actually, you know, Bonet and I haven't actually mentioned this publicly. But it's, it's to what you were saying, Ben. It's like this: um, there is this perception, this underground filming, this danger. But actually, that for me, when I look back, that I, I can't believe how that that changed my life. I, I picked up uh, 15 kilos um, from from not exercising. And um, slowly, my tendons have repaired. Um, so it's taken five years. And um, I'm back now running again. I'm now doing between five and 10 Ks. And hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to do the half marathon, uh, half marathon um, distance again soon. But yeah, that was, that, was, that was dramatic. I mean, I thought we would get taken out by, by poachers or, or syndicate members, or, or we'd get an angry black rhino charging us while we were out filming <laughs> in, in Kruger or, or Shishlui in Pelosi. But I mean, who would have thought that a virus that led to a bacterial infection that I picked up on shoot would have had such devastating health implications? And I think it's only now with a pandemic, I'm looking back at that and going, yeah, actually, I should talk about that because that is a that is a risk that filmmakers and, and people who who go out there and, and go into these strange locations, um, you know, that is something that you pick up. And, you know, who would have thought? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's you know, we can talk and I'm sure you can. I'm not not us, but people like yourselves can talk about the stress that comes along with it and um you know uh there's all sorts of other you know you're in foreign countries what you're eating etc etc and like you say you you expose yourself to to an environment that pollution um and an environment that your body's not accustomed to so it just reacted even worse and and that's still a risk and like you say potentially more suffer from the same fate for the sake of a foreigner going into somewhere else to report on a particular story. Um, so, you know, we really do owe a lot to people like yourselves that put your own health and well-being at risk to get us some ridiculous stories. And I say ridiculous because they shouldn't be happening. But 
anyway no thank you yeah. for sharing that and and you know nice to have some exclusive stories it's not quite the one <laughs> that you know we're going to rave about but it is important to be told because not a happy feel good story <laughs> you know you're not the first filmmakers we've interviewed and there will be plenty more to come um, and I think that's an important component that a lot of our listeners and a lot of people in general need to understand that just to bring a story that makes you feel good or makes you realize about something, well, you know, these individuals are actually putting themselves at, a, at their own well-being risk. So I think it's important to acknowledge that. So thank you. Yeah, and Ben, sorry to jump in uh, there. Um, I, I think also this gives us a great opportunity for your listeners as well. There's, uh, I saw this morning, there was an article that, that I saw about um, uh, journalism being replaced by, by PR, um, kind of PR journalism. And it, it is a worry, you know, we all around the world, the newsrooms are, are closing, we, we're not getting uh, independent uh, news journalism, we're not getting independent film journalism, the same with, with our film. You know, as Bonnet mentioned, there were many NGOs that wanted to jump on board, but obviously they would have a say and they'd want to populate the, the film with their scientists, their researchers. And of course, they had every right to because they've put their money in. So to be able to to film independently and to be able to work um, as, as independent filmmakers is very difficult. So if you see campaigns running for independent journalism or independent filmmaking, please do support because they really those voices, we're losing them and, and they're being taken over by by um, NGOs and corporations, um, you know, trying to get their their viewpoint in. And it's completely understandable. I'm not knocking that at all. It makes sense. If, if I was a large corporation or a large NGO and I was passionate about rhinos and there's this film being made, of course I'm going to go, hey, you need to hear from our scientists. So so that's really important. And and, and on, on that note, I just want to give a shout out to to Peter Eastwood from Tanglewood Foundation. He's from from New Zealand. I think he's been interviewed by you guys as well. And 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 his foundation, Tanglewood, were incredibly supportive of Stroop. And um, that, not once. I mean, when when he approached us, and we sort of said, oh, you know, yeah, another NGO. I'm sorry, you can't you can't have. And he said, I don't. I don't want any. I just I I really want to support what's going on. And look, I support all these other films out there. Can you see all the other independent films I support because I believe in them. And um, and that's he's one individual that made a huge difference to to Stroop and and you know so thank you New Zealand for giving us Peter Eastwood and the Tanglewood <laughs> Foundation. No, he's a, he's an amazing man, and we had him on on the first show, and um, yeah, and we've since spoken to to a couple of others, and 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 in future again we'll do as well, you know, organisations or filmmakers that he has been uh, connected to, and and just like yourselves, hugely indebted and and um, to him and and able to deliver and produce what the world needs thanks to a fantastic man like Peter Eastwood. So, yeah, and we know Peter listens to this, so thank you, Peter, from all of us. So this is such an incredibly complex issue. We've got economic, we've got social justice, poverty issues, you're up against corruption, you're up against hundreds of years of cultural traditions as well. So, again, this is really important to just note that you were independent in this so you know no influence coming in but where do you even start with this where do you think the root of the problem lies what what will give us our you know the biggest bang for our buck in terms of trying to solve this extremely complex issue yeah well with regard to the judicial system um you know we mentioned it quite a lot in in the film there's so many loopholes for you know for well-paid defense teams and 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 you know um 
we would we would sit in in court and, and watch a case for years for years and not see it move forward and and you know we were we were very frustrated because there were a lot of cases that we wanted to include in the film but we couldn't because they hadn't even started so for me i think i think a major issue is the um, is the judicial system, the the loopholes that the that the poachers and the the, the poaching defence teams have found. We we have a legal system that works for the victim. We need a, a legal system that works for the victim and not for the criminal. At this point, it's the other way around. It's a system that works for the criminal and not for the victim. Mm. Um, you know, we we need to know that this is a this wildlife crime is is deeply rooted. It's an ever-changing crime mm. that takes advantage of the set secretive structures put in place. Um, you know, it's serious. It's a serious crime. It's driven by demand. It's facilitated, as you mentioned, Emma, by corruption. And it's linked to organized crime and militias in many countries. Some even say terrorist networks. So we need to disrupt the criminal networks because just arresting the poach on the ground as important as it is, will not change anything because a poacher is replaceable. Uh, there are 10,000 young men just like him waiting to take his mm. place. So we need to arrest, but more importantly, we need to convict the higher-ups in the poacher, the middlemen and the syndicate bosses. And it's not as, you know, it's not that easy because, you know, they don't do the dirty work. They're just on the ground to do the dirty work. So you need to follow the money trail and, and things like that, that takes time. But I think we need a minimum sentence for rhino poaching without the option of a monetary fine. And also we need stricter bail condition. Um, mm. You know, rangers will tell us that they would arrest the guy, uh, then realize, but we know this guy, we know these guys. We arrested them five years ago with horns, with blood on their clothing, with a panga, with a rifle. And here they are back in the park poaching again. It's just not good enough. Yes, yeah, so I think uh, you know, as Bonnet was saying, I mean, that's 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 something that that was really noticeable for us here on the you know in the filming in the source site. You know, we we refer to it as the source site and demand site. Obviously, the source site where you know, it, it sounds we're making it, it you know it's a very emotional topic, and we're certainly not we're doing our best not to make it emotional, are we? With all these uh, all these scientific terms, but. Yeah, so there's the source site, which obviously where all the rhinos are in, in South Africa and the demand site in, in Asia. And um, yeah, so for us, there's so, uh, that I think was the big thing was, it's such a cliched term, but there's no silver bullet. And that's what everybody kept saying to us. There's no silver bullet. So uh, people who, who you know, believe strongly in one, well, you know, just around the corner, you'll find somebody that believes in exactly the opposite thing. And that's what made this so difficult and so complex for us. And um you know, when 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 we look at at what you were, were saying, Emma, with the you know the um, it's socioeconomic, it's it's you know it's it's so layered, and um, you know we we battled to to un and that's obviously why it took us four years to do to film it, but we battled to unravel all of those aspects and go, okay, here's the solution, here's the thing that would fix that, and so for us. Um, we actually looked to China and we saw what they did with their panda. No one would even think of touching a panda in, in China. The rules, the, the way the government enforces protection of pandas in their country is just, it's a, it's a national icon. And I wish that our, I mean, they even use it, they call it panda diplomacy. So China will loan 
pandas out to zoos and they still belong to China. And I wish that we somehow could do something like that, that the rhinos belong to South Africa, the white rhinos or that to Africa. And there's a, there's a you know, collective consortium. Uh, we know that there's rhino range states, India, Nepal, um, you know, and so on. And that, that, that if, the, if they follow what, what China did, ironically enough, with the, with the panda, I think we would see things rather differently. So for us, we look to how the, the panda was, was saved and, and brought back. It was really done through that 100% commitment from government and saying, you know, this is a national icon. We are not prepared to take this anymore. We are throwing everything behind uh, preserving and, and looking after our pandas. And so, yeah, so for us, we do feel that the solution is, is enforcement and, and, and much stricter, as Bonnet was saying, um, the judicial system has to be harsher. Also, you know, we have... We have communities bordering national parks that live in poverty. And 27 years after apartheid, there's an even more devastating consequence. We've got 2 million South Africans living along the border of our biggest national park, the Kruger National Park. And for decades, they were excluded from Kruger. So there is this, this sort of disconnect with nature just mm. outside these incredible wilderness spaces. And combined with poverty, well, organized criminal syndicates are able to operate efficiently in these spaces. So we have to consider the broader economic, political and systematic factors. We need broad-based community empowerment and involvement by addressing inequality and poverty. You know, local communities may become protectors of wildlife and conservation areas if they were granted agency, ownership and benefits. And I think there are examples of that, perhaps in areas like Kenya and, and Tanzania. But just to go back to to, to, your, to your to the previous discussion, how much of a role do you think education plays? Because we talk about how China protects the panda; it's a national icon. But what if? And I'm sorry to throw Emma under this bus, but what if Australian society decided that? The fur of panda had specific medical, medicinal qualities that is going to cure obesity. Yeah, I'm just making this up off, on the cuff, right? So there's a demand. There's a belief. There's a demand. Regardless of how much China protects their panda, that's going to drive a criminal entity to to get that what, what they need. So, you know, we talk about government policies we we talk about you know the ill effects of corruption but in africa we are trying to protect the rhino we are trying to do our best and yet we're losing a battle there so how much of a role does education play or can or, or is that not really you know getting as much of a result yeah look i i, I do love your comparison i love the you know panda hair and and suddenly the australians uh, wake up and decide it's got some sort of um, medicinal uh, I would love to see these Australian underground gangs no, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> making light of a very serious subject um, yeah you know let's say if that if that did happen um, you've got to look at you've got to look at how China protects their pandas what what happens if you're corrupt in China we all know that um, the the sentence is death there's nothing worse um, than, than corruption, it seems, in terms of Chinese governance. Whereas, you know, if you, if you had these Australian gangs that were trying to infiltrate and get, get pandas, 
it would be very difficult to try and bribe government officials in China to help them with permits and smuggling out or making fake hunting permits or allowing pandas to suddenly leave the country. I, I, I genuinely think it's, um, it, it is a governance thing. Um, it's the same with climate change. It's the same with all environmental issues. I mean, look at the Clean Air um, Act that made such a difference in, in the UK and in the States. Uh, we we look at the turn of the last century and um, uh, you know the the air quality the the coal mines and um, it's only you know when in Britain when they passed these clean air acts that things started to change. So you you can really only get huge change on this um, on this kind of level where there's international you know this global these global crime syndicates. You can only get change from government involvement. So yeah, I, I think. If you did have these Australian gangs going in, uh, they would really, really battle to 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 kind of infiltrate or to make sort of some kind of headway into um, working with with Chinese officials. And and that's what you know Bonnet was saying earlier. Corruption is the biggest enabler of wildlife crime. And, and we see that um, in the documentary. It is infuriating. You can see that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's just so I think. For us, we, we have to look at, at tackling the corruption. And as we know, South Africa is rife with corruption at the moment. We've got a, a state capture hearing that's happening at the moment because of, of corruption. And, you know, I mean, our health minister has just had to take leave. Uh, the president gave him leave yesterday because of corruption allegations. So it's it's everywhere. It's rife. It's right. It's throughout our system in South Africa. And, and so sadly, it seems throughout Africa. So. Yeah, you know, I think we're looking at different different things here. It's it's you know, look at China. There's there's no there's just a zero tolerance for for corruption. So, what can citizens do to kind of help combat this? Like, do they write to their member of parliament? Do they join organisations? What what do you think the best move is here? Or is that a hard question to answer? No, that's a very good question, and I'm 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 so glad you asked it because we need to keep the conversation alive. We need, we the ordinary citizens need to speak up about why fighting this matters. We need to use uh, social media. We're all on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. It's free. It's easy to use. We can retweet. We can share posts. But we have to talk about why this matters. We need to keep the rhino conversation alive. Um, a couple of years ago, Emma, there, there was a campaign um, where school children actually clipped their nails and mailed them to the Chinese embassy here in <laughs> South Africa. Yeah. Um, and huge amounts of money went to the Pretoria Zoo to secure the rhinos there. And awareness campaigns were announced by the embassy who wanted to be seen doing something for rhinos in South Africa. So there's one example of how when people stand up and when they speak up, change can happen. So for me, that's that's very important. We need to come together and, and um, let you know, come together and make movements happen if that's our focus and that's what we want. And I think also, you know, there is this thing of, well, what can I do? I'm, I'm one. But, um, you know, there is this, you know, there's there's always, um, if, if you've, you know, money always helps. I mean, it helps with any uh, of these environmental and wildlife issues. So if there is a, a cause or an organization that you feel led to contribute to, that, that always helps. It, it really does. Um, goes a long way in, in Africa, international, um, because of the exchange rate. So that that always helps. 
But, um, you know, yeah, the, the story of what's happening to our rhinos can't just exist in a vacuum. It can't just be just seen in the film and, the, and there's nothing further from there. And there's got to be some engagement afterwards. And, um, you know, I, I look at the, the film Sharkwater. I don't, know if, I don't know if either of you have seen that film. Um, came out about uh, 10 years ago, uh, 15 years ago. And, um, you know, the, the protagonist there was Rob Stewart, and he... Um, he really um, put himself at risk going out there filming filming this. He was showing the the, the finning that was happening, and um, yeah, I I was working a job, um, very happy with my career. I never ever dreamed I'd be doing what what I'm doing, and that somehow it spoke to me. It's um, it really it, it stuck with me for many years afterwards, and I think for for. For us going forward on Stroop, that was a that was a, we, we looked a lot at, at at Shark Water and saw what Rob had done with the film. So, you know, hopefully somebody watches Stroop and just like how I was moved with Shark Water, there's something that may not happen now, but in five years time, ten years time, they'll then take their their um, their action, whatever it is, um, could be something in their local community that they feel that they've got to tell a story about. Um, somebody's dumping illegally. They they actually make the move and, and call the enforcement um, authorities, whatever it is, you know, we, we, we do have this thing of thinking, I'm one person, what can I do? Well, you can go make a film, you can make a phone call, you can make a donation, you can share a post on social media, it all helps. And there are some wonderful organisations that are on the ground in South Africa and other parts of Africa doing amazing work, whether it be rhino conservation or lion, elephant, Pangolin, whatever the case yeah. is. So there are organisations that, you know, we had a very recent episode. We had a chat with Kennedy Zakir of Council of Contributors. Uh, I know in your documentary, I think you make mention of the Kruger Special Ranger K9 unit. And you've actually partnered with them, haven't you? Well, you know, the, the thing is, when you look at donating money to an organisation, it is so, so important to do your homework. Because yeah. there are many organisations, you know, saying on their website, well, you know, this money that you will be donating will go to to rhinos on the ground. And sometimes it's only 10%. And they don't really, they're not transparent enough when it comes to that. So it's always very, very important to do your homework, to donate to credible organizations. And yes, the, this, the honorary rangers here in South Africa, the Sandpox honorary rangers, they do incredible work. Um, they actually do work directly with the Kruger National Park. So when you make a donation, you can specify, okay, I want this money to go to the K9 unit, or I want this money to go to a different section uh, of the rhino work being done. So we work with them. Um, our DVDs of Stroop, um, we actually sell DVDs in, in all the, the shops in Kruger National Park. 10% of that goes to the honorary rangers and directly to the K9 uh, unit. So yes, that is an organization that, that we trust. Um, and I always advocate for them because I know the money is going to the right place. And they, they don't charge um, admin fees. And look, not not every NGO has the ability to do that. Um, of course, you know, there's, there's running costs. I mean, people have got to get a salary at the end of the day. But there's I think there's a, a, a big difference when you've got these large, big international organizations that are flying business class. And I mean, we saw it when we were filming, we would be filming an event um, with with some of these large organizations that were doing their PR things. And, you know, it, it was quite eye-opening to to get on the plane, walk down to towards economy and and see these guys, um, you know, going left, flying business because um, because they, 
their NGO, um, that's part of what they do. They fly business class everywhere. And then to arrive somewhere and find out, oh, they, they didn't actually get on the flight. They flew in their private jets. So, <laughs> you just, uh, wow, um, these are, are um, you know, organizations for endangered species. Okay, um, that's, that's very interesting. So, you know, and their argument will say, they'll say they've got to compete on the international level. They've got to attract, um, you know, the, the, the kind of equivalent businessman that would go and work at a large corporation. So I get that. And it's part and parcel of how they work. So, you know, if that bothers you, then don't donate to them. Donate to the smaller units down on the ground. If you know that these guys have got to now um, interact and do policy with government and, and engage with corporations on that kind of level, and you're fine them flying business class because you know that it's, that it's, it adds to, you know, a bigger, at the end of the day, a bigger goal um, uh, being reached, then then fine, then donate to them. But that does, that does kind of, it does rankle us a little bit. Yeah, so we, we uh, it, it does for a lot of people. And I, and I think that's very, very valid comments, you know, definitely do your research. Um, and in fact, and, and we'll mention him again, Peter Eastwood, actually, when I spoke to him after our interview with him earlier this year, he actually emailed me a list of organizations that he said, these people, 100%, you know, your money goes to good causes. There will be others as well. So certainly do your research and um, Emma and I will find a way of whether it's in the show notes or in other ways of, of actually uh, publish, uh, publishing maybe those those organizations that we know. We won't say Peter's vetted them, but basically we know they're to be trusted. And, and it's, it's important because, you know, when we talk about every small contribution is to make a change, well, we want to make sure that's going to make a contribution, not just... Uh, a three-course meal on a business class flight, you know, for three hours um, of flying. So um, now to watch this documentary, um, Strup, uh, Emma and I have watched this off Vimeo. We've we've bought it. We've downloaded it. How else can globally people watch it? Bearing in mind most of our audience is Australia and New Zealand. Um, also just want to add 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. There's not a lot that get that. And five full stars on Amazon, Google, Apple. So Clearly very well rated. It is a documentary that made me cry, not just shed a tear, but it actually made me cry. Um, how can we watch this? Well, sorry sorry about that, yeah. Ben. Um, <laughs> no, we, know it's a, we know it's a... That's when you know you've made the impact. Yeah, mm. yeah. it is a difficult watch, but it's, it's obviously, uh, you know, the, the more people watch it, um, the more people know, because we made this documentary so that uh, we didn't have people saying, oh, I, I didn't know that this was going on. So... Mm. Yeah, um, so thank you for, for that shout-out for where people can, can watch. And also, we still have film loans to pay, so any Vimeo downloads would be greatly appreciated. So thank you both for that. Yeah, and so so um, for, for the listeners, um, Stroop is available digitally now in over 80 countries and in seven languages. It's on iTunes, um, Amazon Prime, Google Play, Vimeo On Demand, um, and also on, on DVD. Um, so people can also go directly to our website, uh, at stroop-film.com and they will they will find all the links that can directly link them to the film on these various platforms brilliant yeah no it's it's a heartbreaking but rage inducing watch all at once um but a must watch because we absolutely need to solve this issue um and i hope you had a well-earned little holiday um after all of this wrapped up because you've now brought out an, another documentary into the world um do you guys ever take a break <laughs> You know what? Um, I, I remember very well when we did uh, the local cinema run, which we also had to do independently because no cinema distributor would take the film on because they said, well, you know, it's a documentary and it's a documentary about rhino poaching. Who's going to want to watch it? 
So we actually hired the cinemas ourselves and we had sold out screenings in 16 cities around the country. Um, but so I, thank you to the yeah, public. I mean, again, it public. just shows you, you know, sometimes what the, the people in charge, the gatekeepers, mm. what they think the public want to watch is actually, um, yeah. they can be a little bit off. So Exactly. And, you know, we would also be at, of course, you know, every screening and we would do a Q&A afterwards and then uh, people would ask, but okay, so now that strip is done, you've released it. What's your next project? Yeah, what's next? <laughs> what What's next? And the I'm expectation like, wow. has been set. I, I wish I could, I, I wish I can just have a little holiday, you know. <laughs> but um, yeah, we were actually, you know, as Struip became, uh, you know, the success behind Struip and you know the, all the the wins at film festivals, the directors at film festivals started to inviting us to go and represent the film, you know, at the festival, to do Q&A with the audience. And that was very important for us. And, um, you know, they, they were paying for our flights and accommodation. So we were like, OK, great, we can make this happen. Yeah, I, I must say the Scottish um, part of me uh, really, really came came forward on that because I was telling oh, my gosh, we've got, you know, we've got free tickets to, to travel to... <laughs> we must go and then Bonaire said yeah but you know we're still we we're not working we're not paying our bills so uh, what are we going to do for the rest of the time and so I said okay well I'll think of something and um, in actual fact when we had gone um, our world premiere was at San Francisco Green Film Festival uh, at the end of 2018 and we'd we'd gone there and I remember we'd had this crazy world of sort of four years of you know um checking our phones, moving out. We moved our edit suite a number of times. I remember the one time um, Peter actually came to come and view a cut and he had to go through all these security checks to get to where we were editing. And um, yeah, so we, we were living in this completely other world. And I remember we were at this film festival and it's so bizarre, you know, you've got this film that is, it's a difficult watch. It's, it's very emotional. It makes people cry. It's an important film. And you've got people coming up to you with champagne glasses clinking and going, hey, congrats on your film. And you're suddenly going, have you seen it? I mean, what? So I, I couldn't, for me personally, I couldn't relate to this whole, um, this next part of the campaign of the film, which was obviously getting it um, exposed, seen, so that the world could, could see it and go and do these film festival runs. So, you know, I remember at one stage, uh, Bonnet said to me, you, you need to actually you know, be here, you need to be present. You just are, you know, you're in La La Land, kind of standing around, people come and talk to you. You're the director of the film and you just are, are gobsmacked and, and you can't <laughs> you can't engage with people. So I think we, we realized we, we really battled to adjust to that. And we actually went mm. to um, a national park and we spent a bit of time while we were on this, um, you know, starting our cinema run. And that, boy, did that save us. It really kind of um, got us back into, because I think we'd been living in this other peripheral world, and it got us back into society, I, I suppose, and, and able to take social cues again um, and, and behave normally, behave <laughs> how society expects you to behave. And, um, and yeah, it really, um, yeah, it, it just kind of balanced us. And I think for us, when we then started to go on these film festival, um, uh, to, to you know, as I was, Bane was talking about earlier, and and we were saying um, as the success grew and we started getting these invitations, we then thought, okay, well, there've got to be national parks close by that we can go to. So we started visiting these national parks, and decided that we would, um, you know, make good use of our free tickets that we've been given, but um, go to these national parks and and start looking at the magic and the beauty in them, just as we had found it with that first, at that first um, 
film festival that we'd gone to. And um, yeah, so we just thought, oh gosh, we have to tell the story. We've got to, we've got to um, bring out the magic and the nature of these places again, because they're just, they're just so, I don't know, they're just so soul enriching. You, you can go through a trauma, you can go through, uh, um, you know, some huge event. And I think also we've all gone through the pandemic. You get back into nature and get enriched again and, and feel that connection. So I know it sounds very hokey and, and, but we both, it, we both believe in that completely, and that's where kingdoms came from, and that's where the idea from from you know kingdoms happened. And it sounds like it's exactly what you needed, and and, and a huge contrast from Struip to 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 kingdoms. You know, it's 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 that enlightenment, that's that light light at the end of the tunnel. And and I think that documentary from just the trailer I've seen kind of reflects that. Bonnet and Susan, this has been an absolute privilege to have you both on this podcast it's 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 an important conversation especially you know the the very personal stories that you've shared it's very easy for us to like we did pay a few dollars on vimeo download it or go to a cinema in the safety of our own network our own environment and watch this documentary shed a tear or donate some money job done but to get the insight of what you put yourselves through to relay such an important story, I think that's important. And not just like yourself, but other filmmakers as well, especially the independent filmmakers who have to do it all on their own. So it's been such a, a, a real special conversation and, 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 and opportunity to have this with yourselves. And I just want to finish off with this um, little, you know, a few lines I'll say, because we, you know, we've asked this question before, why should myself in New Zealand or why should Emma in Australia, why should we care? I mean, this is in Africa, it's Africa's problem. So I just want to finish off with this and Susan Bonnet, please do add with this, add to this as well. But conservation of wildlife such as rhinos, elephants, tigers, pangolins, sharks, the list goes on, is not just about saving and protecting these amazing creatures, but it's also about conserving the habitat that they occupy. Removing a significant animal from an ecosystem will have a negative impact on the environment as it leads to loss of biodiversity, collapse of food chains, and even has a negative impact on ecotourism and jobs. So why should we care? This is not just Africa's problem. This is our problem because we drive this demand demand for exotic products such as rhino horn. So whether it be for medicinal purposes, which has been debunked, souvenirs, or just to fuel your social and economic standing, we need to drive the end to this. Our responsibility should be to educate those around us as well as support the incredible humans such as Bonnet and Susan that put themselves in danger to protect and conserve our wildlife. Susan, Bonnet, parting shots. Yeah, you could have said it better. Thank you. Very well said. Thank you so much, uh, Ben. And, you know, I just... I want to just add that people do care. You know, when we did the film festival run in the US and we would do the Q&As after the screening, um, we would say, you know, our rhinos here in South Africa, our rhinos in Africa, you know, the rhino poaching crisis. And people would come to us afterwards and say, but why do you keep referring to your rhinos, you know, or Africa's rhinos? Because they belong to all of us. They belong to the world. Uh, rhinos don't own passports. And... So yes, I think I think people all around the world they they do care about what's happening to wildlife, and as you you know rightly say, everything is interconnected. Um, 
and we need to protect each and every species. Yeah, and, and I think at the end of the day, we've got to remember these are living, breathing animals who've got as much right as we do to live and walk on earth, raise babies as we do. And we've all spent time around dogs and cats growing up, and, and we know that animals have personalities. They, they feel pain. They get excited. Um, well, maybe not cats so much, but, you know, when you're around <laughs> them, you know, those aren't imagined things. We, we see them and, and we feel them from our pets. So those things, you know, the scientists don't really always like to acknowledge that wild animals have emotions, but whatever they are, those things like a rhino squealing with what seems like joy when the first rains fall and, you know, running around in circles with, with what seems like mad happiness for no reason other than raindrops falling, you know, we've witnessed that. And um, we've seen, obviously, the horrific side of it, the the trauma of an orphan, the the the, the fear, the crying, the being scared, the cold. Um, they get cold like us. They they feel fear like we do. So how can we not? How can we not protect these animals? Thank you so much for for sharing the behind the scenes scoop of just how uh, phenomenally difficult this was a labour of love. Obviously, blood, sweat, and tears went into this, um, but. We wish you all the very best with your new documentary as well. And we look forward to seeing what's what's next on the list. Yeah. And we beat the load shedding. We did. We did indeed. We're very lucky this morning. Um, and yes, we do have a couple of projects uh, in the pipeline. So very excited about that. And just a big thank you to both of you, Emma, Ben. Um, it's been amazing to, to chat through our journey with you and your listeners. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you guys. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends.